0: good evening to you. All right, Zechariah chapter 9 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Well, we're finding our way there uh, just to let you know that there's soft serve ice cream and toppings available after the service out in the courtyard. And, um, so, and of course, all of that is free. And um, if you're not going to receive anything from the Bible study now, Uh, As a result of that, you go ahead and leave now and uh, go get your ice cream. So anyway, great time of fellowship afterwards and uh, look forward to seeing you out there. So we come to uh, uh, Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah breaks into three uh, basic sections, chapters 1 through 3, a series of eight visions that God gave to uh, Zechariah that the people needed to understand really applied to the rebuilding of uh, the temple and finishing that work, and it's great, eight great principles for Christian ministry. And then, as we saw last week, as we studied chapter seven and eight, speaking about uh, the answer to the question that uh, religious leaders had brought to Zechariah in terms of continuing to uh, acknowledge the feast that they had established, um, or the fast rather, associated with the destruction of the temple. And then when we come to the third major section, chapters 9 through 14, it contains promises concerning their immediate future of the, of the children of Israel, the ultimate future uh, of, of the children of Israel. And specifically, it speaks about God's judgment upon her enemies, and uh, and the ultimate fulfillment of His purposes for them uh, in, in human history, for the most part associated with their Messiah, with Jesus. So this final section, chapters 9 through 14, really break into two uh, final prophecies to close the book. The first prophecy, which we'll look to complete tonight, but we'll see how we do, In uh, chapters 9 through 11, it looks forward to the first coming of Messiah, the first coming uh, of Jesus for the most part. And then chapters 12 through 19 address focus on Messiah's second coming or Jesus' second coming and the introduction of the kingdom age or the thousand-year reign of Christ into human history. And so here is this uh, prophecy that begins in chapter 9. In this uh, future kind of intervening uh, period of judgment that 's going to come upon the enemies of the children of Israel and uh, fulfilled uh, in these first nine verses eight verses that make up this initial part uh, of chapter nine uh, and and uh, a a prophecy that was uh, given to the children of Israel at the time of the Medo-Persian empire by uh, Zechariah and uh, but it will be fulfilled about 200 years after the giving of the prophecy by Alexander uh, the Great and we looked at this in some depth when we studied uh, the the uh, uh, prophecy of Daniel when we were in in that book but this is what it addresses. So often, You know, we, when we talk about Bible prophecy, I don't know about you, but my mind immediately goes to uh, the prophecies that have to do with uh, Jesus fulfilling them related to His first coming, and then the prophecies that He's going to fulfill yet in His second coming, in the end of the age. And of course, those are the most significant prophecies because they have to do with Him, and the volume of the book testifies of Him. But there are a lot of prophecies that are given in the Scriptures that speak of future events for the nation of Israel, that are in a little tighter uh, time uh, period and has to do with them specifically as a people. And these first eight verses of chapter 9 deal with uh, that. God's judgment against Israel's enemies in the form of uh, uh, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great would come in following the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, the Grecian Empire, one of the great world-ruling empires of of the ancient world. And uh, he conquered the known world at that time, so to speak, including the Middle East, including uh, the the uh, nations that were enemies and surrounded Israel. And he begins the burden of the uh, word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, also against Hamath, uh, which borders it. And so he gives his prophecy uh, against Syria. Uh, Alexander the Great would conquer Syria when he talks about therein. Uh, in uh, verse 1, that all of the eyes of uh, of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. It speaks of the fact that all of the people uh, during that period of time of Alexander the Great's conquest of uh, the Middle East, they're going to be focused on the amazing conquests, the very, very swift conquests of of the ancient world by Alexander the Great, but it would be only Israel that would recognize this as a fulfillment of prophecy, as uh, them, uh, Alexander the Great being used as an instrument uh, in God's hands to judge Israel's uh, enemies in fulfilling uh, this prophecy. He then moves on to prophesy against Tyre and Sidon uh, in the latter part of verse 2 and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, for Tyre built herself a tower heaped up silver like the dust, and gold like the mire uh, of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. And so, again, Tyre and Sidon were conquered by Alexander the Great. Um, Even Tyre, which was kind of this uh, city island nation making up kind of the Phoenician empire, which was made up of not this contiguous land uh, that was all connected, but by these major seaports that made up uh, their kind of empire. And uh, Tyre was this uh, had a, a, a located on a, on the land on a, a, the, the seashore, moved out to the island as we saw uh, elsewhere in the scriptures uh, in order to avoid being conquered by. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, also being conquered uh, by the Assyrians, and so, uh, but ultimately, despite their defenses, despite all of their wisdom, they would be conquered as well. Uh, it's an amazing prophecy because here is Tyre. Tyre withstood a five-year siege by the Assyrians and did not fall. Uh, the, in, the the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, took all of its great might and brought it against the uh, city of Tyre in an attempt to conquer it. And they were unable to do so. Uh, and, And they endeavored to do so for 13 years. Alexander the Great comes along and he takes it in five months. Uh, exactly as God had prophesied would uh, would be the case, and then he moves in speaking about the judgment that he would use uh, Alexander the Great to bring against israel 's enemies, he includes the Philistines, the perennial enemies of of uh, Israel, Ashkelon, a significant city of the Philistines, shall see it in fear. Uh, Gaza also shall be very sorrowful, and Ekron, for he dried up her expectation, and the king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod. I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth. And the abominations from between his teeth, speaking about the idolatry that dominated uh, the Philistines at that time, or the, uh, 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 here, and uh, and the sacrifices that they would eat, and God calls it uh, the the uh, what they worship to be abominations, and the offerings to be uh, the the blood sacrifices to be blood in in their mouth and between their teeth. But he said, uh, but he who remains. Uh, even he of the Philistines shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite, so he names five of the major cities of the Philistines uh, that in talking about the the conquering. Uh, of the land of the Philistines. And then he speaks about not only uh, their their destruction at the hands of Alexander the Great, but that following that destruction, they would cease to be the kind of enemy that they had been to Israel all along. And it also speaks in a far fulfillment of the, of the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ, when here you'll have uh, the Philistines and the Jews and the rest of the world, even the Scots, and the uh, and the Irish will be there in in worshiping uh the Lord he goes on to speak um of the protection that he would offer to uh, Jerusalem uh, in, in the time in the invasion of Alexander the Great. I will camp around my house, speaking of the temple, because of the army, uh, army of Alexander, because of him who passes by and him who returns, and no more shall an oppressor pass through them. For now I have seen with my eyes. And so Jerusalem and the temple here, Zechariah prophesies 200 years in advance that even though uh, this uh, great invader who we now know to be Alexander the Great would bring this devastation upon all of the surrounding nations that were enemies of Israel, that he would not touch Jerusalem and he would not do any harm to the temple, and this is exactly what happened. And it's it's just like uh, the weird kind of deal that only God could know. Why wouldn't he wipe everything out? But when he went to the south, Alexander the Great to uh, punch Egypt in the nose, um, he did no harm to Israel on his way there. When He came back up through the land not only did He do no harm to the temple and to Jerusalem and to the land, but He even uh, gave animals to be sacrificed on his behalf at the temple doesn 't mean that he became a follower of the lord he 's a very superstitious man, and he just wanted any and all gods to kind of be on his uh, on his side and so uh, the uh, Alexander the Great came through the land, and then it speaks of the fact that uh, having made his passes through the land that he wouldn 't come through the land of Israel. Uh, again. And of course, he turned his sights on uh, really conquering the rest of the world. Now, Zechariah, here he begins in, in uh, verses uh, 9 and and 10 here, as he's talking about this great king, this great Gentile king uh, in the future. He prophesies now of the day when uh, Israel's king will come, the Messiah, when he comes to Zion and uh, how they will be able to recognize Him. And here he speaks in one of the great prophecies concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. And he describes uh, the entrance of the Messiah uh, into uh, Jerusalem. In verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you, and He is just and having salvation Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of uh, a donkey. And so uh, he, the entrance of the king, Jesus, uh, he fulfilled it at his first coming in what is known as the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before his crucifixion. And Uh, as he came in on the foal of an ass and and came in on the donkey as was declared. The description here of him is beautiful. Uh, God lets him know that when Messiah comes, he's going to be just. That is, he's going to be righteous both in his conduct and in his character and in his teaching. And then he's also going to have salvation. That is, when he comes into the world, the single great focus that he is going to have is on salvation in His first coming and that, and offering the nation of Israel, offering the world salvation from sin. He would come into the world as a king, but He would come into the world as a Savior. And then his entrance uh, is described there as he's lowly, riding on a donkey, uh, a colt and the foal of a donkey. So he's righteous. He offers salvation, and yet there's a humility about him. Not a humility that can be uh, taken uh, that could be viewed as a weakness in any kind of way. And the reason that can't happen is because he's righteous. Um, when you're righteous, and that's a settled issue, you, and, and nobody's going to change that, you can be as humble as you want, uh, because the righteousness will never be threatened, of course, when you're God, because what can threaten threaten that? And, and so... He comes in and uh, and would come in peacefully. He'd come in humbly, of course, in contrast to the kings of those days. Certainly related to Rome, which all of their triumphal entries were uh, miles of loot, uh, loot that they had would get from countries that they had conquered and prisoners and all of these kind of things. They'd come in on uh, white horses and chariots and all this kind of stuff. And he says, now don't look for your Messiah to come in in a, genti- a Gentile way. He's going to come in. He's going to come in and reveal himself. Uh, with, and his entrance will be peaceful. It'll be, it will be humble. And of course, Jesus did that on that poem Uh, Sunday. And here Zechariah is uh, many, many centuries before Jesus actually does that. He calls on Jerusalem to then um, explode in praise for the Messiah when he comes in this way on the fold of a donkey, comes in with humility and offering salvation. Now, unfortunately, There were some people in Jerusalem that recognized Jesus to be the Messiah, that great celebration that happened on Palm Sunday, the branches, the clothing being put down before him, the messianic psalms that were being sung to him. But by and large, the Jewish people uh, turned kind of a blind eye to him. They were too busy about their lives. They had been indoctrinated away from him, as we'll see a little bit uh, later later. And, uh, and and so they they missed Him and they kind of disdained even the humility of Him uh, despite the fact that He's perfectly uh, described in the way that He would come by Zechariah so much earlier. Of course, Jesus' fulfillment of this on Palm Sunday is given to us in the Gospel of Luke and, and John. And they quote uh, Zechariah here And in calling, uh, describing that as the fulfillment of his prophecy. And then he. Uh, the future uh, physical reign of the Messiah at His second coming. In verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be cut off and He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so it's interesting. Now here this speaks about Jesus' second coming, establishing the kingdom of the thousand year reign of Christ and um, it's interesting that when both John and Matthew quote the fulfillment of uh, Jesus' fulfillment of Zechariah here in chapter 9 verse 9 when they quote that in their gospels they stop at verse 9 they don't go into verse 10 I mean, being led by the Holy Spirit, the recognition that there's going to be two comings here. And what He's doing right now before you, Israel, is He is fulfilling the prophecies of Zechariah related to His second coming, but they did not move on to what He is going to accomplish in His second coming. And so, He's going to bring peace. All weapons of war will be abolished during the Kingdom Age. How wonderful will that be? I mean, you just stop and think about what the world, what our country pays for uh, military uh, year in and year out in order to Uh, equip an army, to train an army, to have an army standing in place. Think about what we pay for law enforcement. Think about what we pay in terms of courts and, and prisons and judges and incarceration and all of this kind of stuff. And all of that is going to be gone in the kingdom age. There won't be any need for it uh, at all, and His reign is going to cover uh, the entire earth. And of course, the church age, the age that we're living in here, Uh, is uh, found uh, right between verses 9 and verse 10. And and as he moves then into verse 11, uh, Zechariah begins to describe kind of the great things that are going to uh, uh, transpire in Israel prior to the first coming uh, of the Messiah. And uh, he begins here in verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. So, Zechariah once again calls upon the Jews that were taken captive into uh, Babylon, remained there now into the Medo-Persian Empire, and he calls on them to return home. And he, and he talks about them, likens them to be prisoners being set free from a waterless pit. If you were down in a waterless pit is a prison, a waterless cistern in the ancient world, you were as good as dead. That's a hopeless condition. Nobody's getting you out. You're not getting yourself out. Uh, in order to get up to the opening and, and get out. That was their condition, hopeless. And yet the Lord said, I've made a way now for you to get out of that cistern. You had no hope before. I've provided the opportunity to return to uh, Israel and now uh, take advantage of that opportunity. And if you do so, He promises them, then I will uh, bless you. And then in verses 13 through 17, We have a description of a period in Israel's history known as the Maccabean period. And here Zechariah describes the victories of the Maccabeans uh, a little bit later in their history after they uh, returned and uh, back into the land in earnest and all of the people a little bit further down the line in uh, the Maccabeans uh, rising up. Judas Maccabeus against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and, and the uh, Syrians in 165. Uh, B.C. Again, we, we, we studied this in some detail in, in the book of Daniel, and it's brought up here. The Maccabean's uh, v- coming victory is just kind of a foretaste or uh, an appetizer for the kind of victory that Jesus is going to bring and, and, and security into the whole world at, uh, at His second coming. For I have bent uh, Judah, my bow, "...and fitted the bow uh, with uh, Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man." And then the Lord will be seen uh, over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will blow the trumpet and go from uh, whirlwinds from the south. And so God is going to uh, uh, use the children of Israel to defeat this kind of um, incarnation or, or uh, derivative of the old Grecian Empire uh, as it was divided, defeat Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, and uh, and that uh, they would tri- uh, triumph because uh, of the Lord's uh, blessing of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, uh, not uh, not Antiochus Epiphanes, but uh, uh, Judas Maccabeus in, in his battle against them. And the Lord will defend them. He will devour and uh, subdue with sling stones. Uh, in other words, it wouldn't even... God says it, the, the, they're, they're going to be so outmatched against the, the Syrians, uh, and it's going to be like they're fighting with sling stones compared to... Uh, what the others are armed with and yet they will prevail they shall drink and roar as if with wine they shall be filled with blood like basins like the corners of the altar speaking of the great slaughter of the syrians that would uh, would occur and the lord will save them in that day as the flock of his people for they shall be like the crown, jewels of a crown lifted like a banner over his head. The improbable victory of Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabeans during that time uh, was so, uh, again, it was so improbable uh, that the whole world recognized that this is something that only God could have pulled off. And in seeing that victory, it was kind of like uh, God was crowned in the eyes of the world uh, as a result of, of the victory he had been given to them he received great glory for it for how great it, it, it is its goodness and how great its beauty grain shall make the young men thrive and the new and new wine the young uh, women and so their fulfillment their victory that is going to occur uh, is going to be beautiful and it's going to bring great, great blessing into the land. Now again, this is a prophecy that we see in the Bible that is given and then fulfilled even before we came along. Now imagine that, the audacity. We're Americans in 2022. We're the most important people in the world. Was God giving people prophecies before we came along and then fulfilling them? Uh, but so he did. A little tongue-in-cheek on that. But, uh, but it is the fulfillment of these and so many other prophecies like this that testify to the uh, divine inspiration of, of the Scriptures. So that when we look at the prophecies that are yet to, to uh, be fulfilled, we know that they will be fulfilled with the same uh, kind of, uh, of uh, uh, detail. And so then we come... Uh, moving on into chapter 10, and chapter 10 and 11 they form a a single message. Chapter 10 describes uh, the coming Messiah. Uh, that he uh, now he's described as a true shepherd, kind of in contrast to all of the false shepherds who had failed uh, to keep the nation of Israel spiritually well directed in in their history. And uh, and then chapter 11 describes Israel's rejection of Messiah, rejection of Jesus at His first coming, and then the disastrous consequences that uh, they have dealt with to this day uh, as a result of that uh, rejection. And so here is the Messiah, the true, um, the true shepherd, and uh, what uh, he w- w- would bring uh, to Israel in contrast to the false shepherds. Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds, uh, and he uh, will give them showers of rain, grass in the field, for everyone. Of course, it's an arid part of the world. Rain means everything. It means whether you eat the next year or not in terms of grain. If you got a good rain at the beginning of the season, so your crop would grow and and, and uh, uh, be a good one, that would be a blessing. If you got a latter rain on top of it, that was a double blessing. So God is uh, here He's saying uh, that uh, Messiah is going to give rain at the right time. He's going to bring blessing. Uh, to the land of Israel. Uh, and then verse 2, For the idols speak delusion, the diviners envision lies, they tell false dreams, they comfort in vain. Therefore the people, wend their way like sheep, they are in trouble because there is no uh, shepherd. And so the Messiah, when He comes, He's going to, and Jesus intended to have done this, but He was rejected, would be to remove all idolatry from the land. And there was a great amount of idolatry that happened among the children of Israel uh, in uh, historically, and then uh, in verse three, my anger is kindled against the shepherds. I will punish the uh, goat herds and so uh, jesus 's uh, desire to bring judgment against the false shepherds who had uh, uh, been uh, unfaithful as leaders spiritually to the nation. For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them uh, from his royal uh, horse uh, in uh, battle. And so he's going to come from Messiah, from the tribe of Judah. From him comes the cornerstone. In other words, he's going to bring stability to the land of, of Israel. That's what a cornerstone does. From him. Uh, uh, the tent peg. A tent peg in a tent was a a large kind of wooden dowel that would be placed there so you could put tools or equipment on top uh, 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 on it to be held. And and so talking about Jesus being uh, dependable in the way that a a tent peg is, and from Him the battle bow, uh, and from Him every ruler uh, together, and so the Messiah bringing victory to the land and uh, and then also uh, uh, wiping out any kind of uh, oppressor against uh, Israel when it talks about from him every ruler together, the word ruler there 's probably better oppressor, he would bring an end to israel 's professor uh, 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 oppressors and this is all of this is what Jesus intended to bring to the nation of Israel, and to the world in His first coming. Now, God knew, of course, in His foreknowledge, He knows everything. So, He knew that Jesus would not be received by the Jews in His first coming. So, He knew they would reject Him, and that these particular promises could have been fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, but they would not be until His second coming but it really makes you just stop and think about how god was willing to what what the how different the world would be if the jewish people and the world uh, uh because of the jewish people's recognition of jesus if they had recognized him as the messiah given him that place 2000 years ago i mean all of human history would have been rewritten from what is now certainly jewish uh history Uh, nothing uh, like what has happened to them uh, would have happened to them. So, you know, you get into these sanctified speculations on this kind of thing, and I don't know how how helpful it is at all, except to realize uh, that uh, they might have done it. They were intended to do it. Let's put it that way. God knew that they wouldn't, so there's another plan in His grace. But this is what he wanted to be to Israel and wanted to be to the world 2,000 years ago. Rats. (laughs) It's been pretty tough going for 2,000 years. And uh, when God would have been willing to do something uh, very, very uh, different and and certainly uh, very much superior... He goes on and says, uh, I, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them and they shall be as though I had not cast them uh, aside. And so uh, here is, is, is the Messiah. Now Jesus is going to uh, regather the, the nation of Israel and the Jews back into uh, the land. And, uh, and he goes on and says, in, in uh, continuing uh, there, uh, because I have mercy on them, they shall be as though I had not cast them aside. What mercy! For I am uh, the Lord their God, and I will hear them. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice... In the Lord, I will whistle for them and gather them. And the idea is of, of a shepherd whistling, the flock hearing the whistle, and, and uh, gathering Israel to himself. Uh, and for I will redeem them, and they, shall, uh, and they shall increase as they once increased. And so he's going to return them back into their land, uh, and, and to prosper them there, and they'll fill the, the Lamb Will be filled with rejoicing. Now, immediately prior to so, this has a, a, a near fulfillment here, but it has its greatest fulfillment is a far fulfillment. Immediately before Jesus' second coming, of course, the Antichrist comes at the seven, uh, the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period. He does what is called the abomination that causes desolation. He allows the Jews to rebuild the temple. They rebuild the temple at the three-and-a-half-year mark. He walks into the Holy of Holies, sits down, declares himself to be God, and demands to be worshipped as God. At that point in time, the Jews realize they've been fooled by him and, uh, and as Jesus instructs them, they flee out of Jerusalem, out of the land of Israel, and away from the persecution. Then that the Antichrist focuses very intently uh, upon them, and they spread out will spread out uh, into uh, the whole world, and uh, and uh, heading out and and uh, uh, fleeing away from. Uh, all of all of what is going to uh, uh, from the persecution of the Antichrist, and then at Jesus' second coming, he will have a victory over the Antichrist, as well as these three kind of great armies that uh, come together at in, 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 in the Battle of Armageddon, and and the future uh, of the Jewish people, and really the righteous all around the world. It's, it looks like it's absolutely in jeopardy. There's no future for the righteous. Everything changes at the second coming. It looks like for the first time in human history at that point that all goodness is going to disappear. All righteousness is going to disappear. Not one righteous person is going to survive what the Antichrist has turned the world uh, into. And it is only Jesus' second coming and his victory there that turns everything on a dime instantly And so Jesus speaking here uh, about uh, that change, the blessings that He'll uh, bring, regathering uh, the Jews back into the nation of uh, the land of Israel from uh, all around. Uh, uh, the world and the the regathering is described beginning in verse 9 I will sow them among the peoples and they shall remember me in far countries and they shall live together uh, with their children they're going to uh, return and they shall return they're going to return back to the land Uh, they're going to return back to the land uh, with their children Uh, and uh, I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather Gather them from Assyria. Egypt and Assyria kind of represent uh, all of the lands, Gentile lands of the world that the Jews have been dispersed into during the tribulation period. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until there's no room for them. He's going to fill the land with the Jewish uh, people. And, uh, and so you put yourself in the place of the Jews as they're reading this. And as they will read it during the tribulation period, um, and imagine what a comfort and what hope it's going to infuse uh, in them. Even in this place, where we have not only rejected our true Messiah, Jesus Christ, but we consider the Antichrist to be our Messiah. I mean, how wrong can you get uh, things? How badly can you compound your errors? And think God is going to be through with us. We're going to be dispersed. We're going to be destroyed. We have no hope against the persecution that's being meted out against us. And then they, they read this and how it would uh, and, and will infuse them uh, with hope, and he shall pass through the sea uh, with affliction and strike the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the river shall uh, dry up, and then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. And so God is going to bring Israel back into the land uh, following Jesus' second coming, and he will do it by miraculous uh, uh, means. And so I will strengthen Them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in His name, says the Lord. And so, uh, a return to God, a return to a desire to glorify Him, will then uh, mark uh, that particular period in their uh, their history, as you might imagine, uh, as they realize how, how gracious God has been to them in their treatment of. Uh, of the Lord, of the treatment of Jesus as their Messiah, and when He shows them this kind of grace again, uh, and, and uh, Jesus here, a second coming, another opportunity after all of their failures. Their failures in the Old Testament, I'm not talking down about them, or talking down uh, to them, but the failures are significant. Nothing compares to the rejection of their true Messiah. And, uh, and yet here, even in all of this and all of that failure, uh, they're going to uh, be delighted in, in the fact that God uh, loves them grace. It's going to be a, a source of, of praise and worship in their hearts uh, uh, during that, uh, that kingdom age. Then when we come into chapter 11... We've got the rejection of Jesus as uh, Messiah and the rejection of the Good Shepherd at at His first coming. And then again, the consequences that have occurred to Israel as a result of that that rejection. So chapter 11 is really a very, very sobering uh, chapter because it reveals the reason for the delay in Israel uh, uh, experiencing all of the blessings that are described in chapter 10. All these things that God wanted to give them so long ago in chapter 10. Now chapter 11 explains why those blessings have, have uh, 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 been delayed and the terrible consequences for uh, their rejection of Jesus at his, his first coming. The consequences that they've endured now for so, uh, so very long. And he and Zechariah writes prophetically, "Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, because the mighty trees are ruined. wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down, there is the sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins, uh, for there, uh, there is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of the Jordan is." In uh, ruins. This describes the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans, kind of the first major physical, mat, uh, material, uh, 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 military consequence Uh, of this kind, uh, related to the Jewish people for rejecting Christ. And uh, the Roman uh, Empire coming in, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., uh, even as Jesus had warned would be the case, as He's making His way uh, to Mount Calvary to be crucified. And uh, on the morning of his crucifixion, allow me to read a passage to you from Luke chapter 23. And a great multitude of the people followed Jesus and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. This is going to happen in your lifetimes. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs, uh, the barren wombs that never bore and breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, "Fall on us!" And to the hills, "Cover us!" For they do. If they do these things in Greenwood, uh, what will be done uh, in in the dry? And so, this destruction uh, by uh, the Romans uh, of Jerusalem in coming to put down a, rev- a revolt against the Roman Empire on the part of uh, Jewish uh, zealots. Uh, never would have happened if if they and the religious leaders that they had trusted in had recognized Jesus as Messiah instead of uh, crucifying uh, Him. And so this destruction is spoken about uh, here, and, and you have here in verses 1 through 3, the wailing of the religious leaders as they watched the temple uh, collapse and, and burn, uh, reduced to, to ruins. Uh, the nations where the wood came from to build the temple, uh, where the oak came from, where the cypress came from, where the cedar came from, uh, they're called on to weep uh, for this forest of wood that was used in the, the building of, of the temple and its destruction uh, a, as well. And uh, the devastation of the Roman military, which was brought into the entire land, uh, is described there in verse 3. Not only the destruction of the temple, not only uh, the devastation of the city of Jerusalem, but uh, impacting even the shepherds and talking about even affecting the lions or the habitat. When the Romans came in, they didn't do anything by half. Uh, They didn't make the mistake of saying, well, I think we can get this done with a hundred people. And uh, and, and, uh, they went in with magnificent force, overwhelming force and discipline. So when they tromped into the land, here you have the shepherds, here you have lamenting the destruction that came to even the most rural part of the land. And then also even the lion with their habitat having been uh, destroyed and adversely affected by... Uh, by uh, this uh, this invasion that that occurred, and thus says the Lord, my God, feed the flock for slaughter, and so uh, they 're going to be slaughtered by the the Roman troops and uh, and, uh, and whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord for I am rich and their shepherds do not uh, pity them. And so they're going to be slaughtered by the Roman legions as they were. And in doing so, the Roman legions would have no more pity upon the Jewish people than a shepherd has in selling a lamb uh, to be given off to be barbecued someplace. And, uh, and the Lord Himself would not lament uh, this judgment that would uh, come to them. The Jews meant nothing uh, to Rome in comparison to what the Jews meant to God. And God watches this. You choose you remember when Jesus was being crucified on the morning of his crucifixion? We have no king but Caesar. And here they get Caesar as a king. Here they learn the hard way what the Roman Empire and Caesar thinks of the Jews and how they'll treat them without mercy and, and without grace. And here you have God who loves them in a way that no one else uh, loves them in human history. And He's been pushed out of the scene uh, for another king that they wanted that's going to bring this devastation. How heartbreaking uh, for for God. And then He declares, God does, for I will no longer, verse 6, Pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but indeed I will give everyone over to his neighbor's hand and into the hands of his king. So here it is. They wanted Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. So he says, I'll give them over into the king that they clamored for and they shall attack the land and I will not deliver the children of Israel from their hand. And so God says, when this happens, the significance of the rejection of Jesus Christ as Messiah by the Jewish people in human history, God says, I will not step in, as I've done so often, to protect you from this devastation and the consequences of your decision-making. Again, the consequences of having rejected Jesus as, as the Messiah. And so I will not deliver them from their hand, and so I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor uh, of uh, the flock and, uh, and so then he moves on and uh, here is uh, Zechariah, he takes two staffs, it was typical for wasn't unusual for a shepherd to have two staffs in those days one with which he would use typically to herd uh, a flock in the normal circumstances and then another staff more hooked in nature uh, to kind of pull them out of danger, out of uh, difficulty and so that's the the imagery uh, that is uh, being uh, used here and so Zechariah here his axe here related to the staffs they are representative uh, of the messiah i i looked uh, i took for myself two staffs the one i called beauty or or grace and the other i called bonds uh, or union and i fed the flock I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them and their soul also uh, abhorred uh, me. And so these names are given uh, to them of these two staffs. Uh, of grace and of union uh, because they indicate what Jesus wanted to bring into uh, Israel's history as the Messiah. He wanted to bring grace to them. He wanted to bring union uh, and and unity uh, uh, to them and to be a force for that uh, among them and uh, And yet that was something that they had rejected. When he talks about these three shepherds here, nobody really knows who these three shepherds were that were rejected in uh, in one month. and so instead of uh, being allowed to do and, and be what he wanted to come uh, to do to be to the Jewish people, uh, they resisted him and, and in uh, Jesus, and in one month, he dismissed. Uh, the three shepherds over the nation. We don't know who these three shepherds are. Clearly they were in positions of uh, power during Jesus' life and, and during His uh, ministry. It could very well be, as, as many uh, uh, Bible scholars look at it and say, it could be a reference to coming to the bringing to an end the three kind of primary classes among the Jews, ruling classes, and that was the bringing an end to the prophet and the priest and, and, and the king. It is interesting that he speaks about these three shepherds, and he speaks about these three shepherds loathing Jesus. There's something. They loathed him, and he knew it. But what is even more alarming for anybody that has a sense of the greatness of God, it says that uh, the Lord Himself uh, loathed them. You have these false shepherds among the Jewish people that so misrepresented the Scriptures that they didn't recognize their Messiah when He came, and when He did come, they did everything to keep any, everybody from becoming a follower of Him. And here you have apparently three that, uh, of, of the great significance in, in, the, in accomplishing uh, all of that. But the Lord looks and He said, I, I, they abhorred Me and I loathe them. Sometimes you look at some of the goofy things that happen under the name of Christianity in the world, is you see absolute shysters, just the worst kind of people, that decide, I'm not going to go out and make an honest living. I'm going to make a living off of ripping people off in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the church. And, 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 and it's a terrible, terrible thing. And you look at it and you say, God, why don't you stop this? I mean, this is, this is confusing people about what you're about and what you're like. The world, this is, this is how you're represented on television in half of what's put on the television. And why don't you bring an end to it? What do you think of, uh, about this? And, and he can he loathe this kind of person and then uh, ultimately bring a judgment upon them as he did here um, with with these three. And then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's uh, flesh. And so I took my staff, again, Zachariah, representing the Messiah, representative action. He took the staff, beauty, cut it in two, that I might break the covenant which I had made with the peoples, children of Israel, covenant with Abraham. And so it was broken on that day, and thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. As they were watching Zechariah do this, they recognized that this action represented a message Um, from uh, the Lord. And so it represented uh, the the first staff beauty, represented God's protection over the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And uh, and now here he would not restrain Rome in any way in the devastation that they would bring into the land. He would just let uh, the consequences of their decision-making run its course. And then Uh, And then I said, verse 12, to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. And so they weighed out from my wages 30 pieces uh, of silver. So again, Zechariah is representing Messiah talking to the nation, and he has Messiah asking the nation of Israel to put a value on him and what he came to do. They responded, "Your, your value to us is 30 pieces of Uh, silver. And that would have been a complete insult. Under the law of Moses, if you had an animal, an ox, that gored a servant that belonged to somebody else, the price that you had to pay was 30 pieces of silver. So they don't even esteem the Messiah. Jesus is saying here, God is saying, when the Messiah comes, they won't even esteem Him the price of a healthy slave. They will put the price on him of a damaged slave. That's how highly they will esteem uh, Jesus when, uh, when he comes. That's the price that they're going to put uh, on him. The very uh, son of God. And then, of course, in verse 13... Uh, the Messiah is represented here uh, as as kind of contemptuously rejecting uh, this sum that uh, has has been uh, put forth, the the the, the paltry price that he was he, he was uh, valued at, and he and the Lord said to me, "Throw the money uh, to the potter." That princely price, and, and there's uh, kind of a. Uh, a dryness to that, this great price that they 've set on me, and so I took the thirty pieces of silver, threw it into the house of the Lord uh, for uh, the potter, and so it was an insult uh, to uh, Jesus. Encapsulated in those really biting words, that princely price that they set on me. Of course, all of this was fulfilled when Judas uh, betrayed Jesus and sold him out for 30 pieces of, uh, of silver. And then, when he uh, later regretted the decision, he brought the money back to the Jewish religious leaders, threw it down at their feet, and then uh, they used it to buy a potter's field in which to bury the stranger or the poor. And so, Matthew's gospel. Chapter 27 records the fulfillment of it. And then Zechariah breaks the second staff in verse 14. And uh, then I cut into my other staff bonds or union uh, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. One of the things historically interesting about when the Romans invaded or or came into the land of Israel in order to put down the rebellion against the Roman Empire uh, on the part of the Jewish people is they came in, as most people did, they invaded the land from the north and uh, and they never ever would have been able to well it would have been much more difficult for them to accomplish what it was that they had accomplished uh, except, uh, except for the fact that there was this uh, the lack of unity between uh, Israel in the north and Judah down uh, in the south and uh, that discord between the tribes of Israel it, it really paid, uh, paved the way for uh, Rome's victory over Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem. And so God says, I'm going to take away the unity that you enjoy and, uh, as a people and, uh, and would be necessary to fight a military like the Romans. And, and so he did, and as it was prophesied, and, and so uh, it, it happened. And then the Lord said to me, Next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish uh, shepherd. And so he's told to dress himself up uh, like a, uh, a shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those who still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat, and he will tear their hooves in pieces. And so here, when he talks about the foolish shepherd, here he's talking about the Antichrist. And the, 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 as these two chapters here talk about the consequences that will come upon the Jewish people, for their rejection of Jesus by and large as Messiah in their first coming, the consequences are absolutely massive as they're being laid out here. But uh, one of the worst, if not the worst consequence, is that their rejection of Jesus uh, will and still will leave them vulnerable to be deceived by the Antichrist and become convinced that He is uh, their uh, Messiah. And here is the description of a shepherd that you don't want to have. You notice there in verse 16, he won't care for those who are cut off. He won't seek the young. He won't heal those that are broken. He won't feed those uh, that are still standing and healthy. In fact, he'll eat the flock. I mean, you don't want a shepherd like that. you sleep with one eye open all the time as a sheep. So what a contrast between what the Antichrist will be to the Jewish people and what Jesus wanted to be uh, to them, and this consequence, uh, unfortunately, fortunately, in in terms of the fact that it will lead to their uh, them turning and recognizing Jesus as Messiah ultimately. But what a terrible price yet uh, awaits them in falling for. Uh, for the, the Antichrist. And Jesus warned them that this would be one of the consequences of their rejection of him when he spoke to the Jewish religious leaders in his day. And he said, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, speaking of, of the Antichrist, him you will uh, receive. Once you reject the truth, then all you've got to believe in are lies. And if you've ever tried to, to witness to Jewish people, uh, not uniformly, but by and large, it's better now than it's ever been before. And we've done a lot of damage. People representing, claiming to represent Christ have done to the Jewish people in terms of really burning bridges for uh, them uh, being open to Christ. And that's changing a lot because of Christians like us who uh, love the nation of Israel. We love the Jewish people. We know that the church has not replaced uh, Israel uh, biblically. They have a place in, in human history that's yet future and prophetic and these kind of things. And so they listen now better than, than before. and uh, uh, But... Uh, but here, once you reject what is true, now you're, all you're left with is lies. So when you, when you talk with someone, and a Jewish person, and, and you say, listen, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and can I show you in the Scriptures why? And you go to Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. You go to uh, Psalm uh, 21. You go to all of these different places. And I won't even consider it won't even allow that as a possibility, that he could be the Messiah. And and when you have that attitude toward truth, now you're completely set up to be deceived by a liar and a false shepherd who who can come along, and he's coming along. The description of the Antichrist is an interesting one that's given here uh, of him. And in the Old Testament here in verse 17, woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. And so he's going to do a lot of damage to the Jewish people. Um, but uh, God pronounces a woe upon uh, the Antichrist. And he declares that a sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be uh, totally blinded. And so he's going to be wounded as a result of some kind of a sword or some kind of a weapon being brought against him. The Antichrist will be during the seven-year tribulation. Uh, this attack is going to leave him with one arm uh, paralyzed and totally blind in his right eye. Might happen in battle. It could be as a result of an assassination uh, uh, attempt. Some commentators look at verse 17, and they view this as kind of, uh, that this is symbolic of the fact that during the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to lose power represented by his arm, and he's going to lose understanding represented by his eye. But it does appear in light of what the revelation says about the Antichrist, that at some point in the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to be uh, direly wounded. He's going to be on his deathbed, and he's going to recover, and the whole world is going to view it as a, uh, a miracle and worship him in an even greater measure as a result. Let me read you as we close here. Uh, Just a couple of verses from Revelation chapter 13 in this vein. And then I stood on the sand of the sea, John wrote, and I saw a great beast rising out of the sea, speaking of the Antichrist, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a heads, a, a, a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, the devil his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled. And followed the beast. As a result, later in the, the chapter, we're told that he exercises all authority uh, of the first beast, the second beast, uh, 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 and uh, 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 that, uh, that is a he's kind of a, a prophet that points people to uh, the Antichrist during the tribulation period, and uh, he exercises all the authority of the first beast. Uh, the Antichrist in his presence, and he causes the earth and those who dwell on it to worship the first beast, beast whose deadly wound uh, was healed. And he performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he uh, was granted to do in the sight of. The beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And it goes on to speak even more about this. So it does seem that something happens. I'm inclined to believe it'll be an assassination attempt uh, somewhere in it, but somehow he survives and, uh, and uh, 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 physical damage being done to him, as uh, Zechariah prophesied. And, uh, and somehow, as, as it will take place during the tribulation, you say, well, I'm not going to be in the tribulation. Why do I care about that? Ah, but the Jews, by and large, will be. And when they see this kind of assassination attempt or whatever it's going to be, and this kind of thing happened to the Antichrist on top of the abomination that causes desolation, then they begin to realize that um, they followed the wrong shepherds in who led them away from Jesus as the Messiah instead of leading uh, uh, them uh, to Him. So we'll stop there tonight and pick it up, God willing, in chapter 12 uh, next week. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. If you're here this evening and you're not yet a Christian, we're going to be up in front immediately after the service. We would love to answer your questions and pray with you to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins tonight and experience the miracle of the Holy Spirit coming into your life and being uh, born again. If you need prayer for any need in your life tonight, we'll be up in front and we would love to pray with you and to pray for you. Uh, remember also that there's refreshments, uh, refreshment out in, in the back. And even if you don't want any soft served ice cream with toppings, I mean, are you crazy? Uh, it, is, it is worth the price, which is nothing, but it is worth the price alone. Uh, to watch kids do that, (laughs) and gobble it down. You only get one childhood, and it's fun to watch them be blessed and have good memories related to the Lord and the house of the Lord. Father, thank you very much for this time in your Word, and we thank you for the more sure word of prophecy the history that you give it in advance, these things that are verifiable, and these things that, as we look at you, fulfill them in the past, and to know that all that is yet to be fulfilled in the future will uh, read like uh, yesterday's newspaper uh, soon enough. We thank you for the witness that it is um, to the your inspiration of the Word of God. We thank you for what it does to our faith. And so often as the accusation is brought against Your Word, that it's just a bunch of fables and it's just a bunch of stories, and yet as we read it, Lord, it certainly reads like history. And, uh, and in, in many, many parts it's history that's already been fulfilled. Thank You for giving us history ahead of time, history that's been fulfilled, and wonderful history uh, that is yet to be fulfilled